0: This episode is a conversation with Michael Schirmer. We discuss God, miracles, and atheism. It first aired on July 25th, 2020. At that time, this podcast was sponsored by CSHS JSA. Please subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. It's free, just like our country. Mr. Shermer, it's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Well, thanks, Ben. You're welcome. Glad
0: to be on. So there's this old story about Laplace and Napoleon, and Napoleon said to Laplace, they tell me that you've written this large book on the systems of the universe and have never even mentioned God. And Laplace replied to Napoleon, I have no need of that hypothesis. So Mr. Shermer, I just sort of want to check your, your temperature on atheism and agnosticism. So Richard Dawkins uses this seven point scale. Uh, Seven being, I know for a fact, a hundred percent certain that there is no God. And one being, I know for a fact, a hundred percent certain there is a God. So on that seven point scale, where would you say you are? Yeah, I'm a six.
1: (laughs) I mean, no one can say for sure uh, that there is no God. It's like, in a way, it would be like saying to the SETI program, I know there's no aliens because you guys have been looking for 50 years. Well, we haven't looked in that many places. <laughs> you know, we don't know for sure that you know the last corner of the universe may, may not turn out an extraterrestrial intelligence. And in a way, it goes even deeper than that, the, this connection I'm making, in as much as any sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence would be indistinguishable from God. So I, I would put them in the same category. That um, you know, until we have evidence for positive evidence for the existence, the default position that um, th- that's the most rational one to take is skepticism. The the null hypothesis that that is your hypothesis that God exists has not met sufficient uh, criteria of evidence to accept it as reliable knowledge. Therefore, we will withhold judgment until we see better evidence that that's kind of how i conceive of it and frankly i'm not sure what kind of experiment would turn my uh, skepticism into belief because anything you could conceive of as what a deity might do i could conceive of in far uh, future advanced human technology or extraterrestrial intelligence technology being able to do i mean genetically engineer life forms you know the creation of life even geoengineering of planets i mean we're going to be able to do this at some time in the future now maybe it's 50,000 years from now or whatever but that's nothing on a cosmic time scale so i i think um in terms of the labels um you know that's it's kind of problematic how these words are used because you know the public has a kind of a common use understanding of agnosticism is somebody uh, who is not sure that isn't what the word means, you know, Thomas Henry Huxley coined that word in 1869. He was a friend of Darwin and a supporter of the teaching of evolution. And, you know, Huxley uh, dove into the question of God's existence and concluded that neither the theists nor the atheists really know for sure. But but therefore agnostic means not knowable. So not not like we're waiting for one more experiment to come in to decide whether you know global warming is real or not or whether wearing masks is good or not you know that that those kind of questions that can be settled empirically fairly uh easily with with more data what huxley meant was that there's no experiment you're going to run to go yes that's it there is a god or nope definitely no god. Uh, so I, I think technically agnosticism is the right position to take ontologically. Uh, now in terms of how you act in the world, you know no one walks around and in, 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 you know, just thinking about something that can never be proven. Um, so you do kind of make a decision I assume there is no God and I act accordingly because if I believed there was a God, I, I would act differently. I would you know probably go to some kind of church service or belong to some kind of religious group associated with that deity. You know, I would maybe modify my habits in a way of what kind of rituals I go through or food that I eat or something, something like that. So that's how I think about that.
0: Now you have a pretty interesting um, story coming into skepticism. So um, at one point, you're a a believer, a born again Christian, no less. So tell us about your, your journey starting in that uh, high school Presbyterian Church to the founder of Skeptic Magazine. How did that happen? (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah, I write about this at length in uh, The Believing Brain. I was about your age actually, slightly younger when I became a born-again evangelical Christian. It was really part of the um, kind of my social group I was hanging out with at high school. And you know, as we know from research, uh, you know, parental influences wane and the influence of peer groups increases when you're in your uh, teen years. And that was the case for me. You know, my friends were all going to these um, uh, Christian churches. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should try this out. And I had two friends, one George, one um, Frank. And George talked me into going to the uh, Presbyterian church. And and, uh, when I did, and, you know, they did the call to service where you come up and you accept Jesus into your heart and you become a born-again Christian right there in the church. So I did it. And then, I, uh, you know, on the next Monday, I went back to, to school and told my buddy Frank, hey, you know, great news. I did it. I'm a Christian now. And he goes, well, where'd you go? I said, the Presbyterian church. He goes, oh, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> Turns out he was a Jehovah witness. And uh, you know, as you probably know, they have r- rather different views than uh, most mainstream Christians do. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. But I did always keep that in the back of my mind, you know, the wrong one. You mean there's a right one? How can that be? I mean, there should only be one God, and and just you know, one religion about that God. So if there's more than one God, what are we talking about here? In any case, so um, but I took it very pretty seriously. I, I I went to Bible classes, and you know, this was the '70s, so uh, it was kind of the, the early stages of the evangelical movement. And uh, we had, you know, like uh, meetings of Christians with, you know, literally singing guitar songs, kumbaya, that kind of stuff. Uh, But then I went to Pepperdine and started taking courses in theology and the Old Testament, the New Testament, the life of Jesus. I took a course in the writings of C.S. Lewis. I read everything C.S. Lewis wrote. And uh, so I'm pretty well steeped in in theological arguments, in biblical history. And so when I later became an atheist then and debated theists and creationists and whatnot, I, I, I can do it pretty well because I already know their arguments because I used to make those arguments. <laughs> um, yeah, so the turnabout really just came from um, becoming more enlightened about the world, how the world works, science, reason, philosophy, rationality, and so on. And it just seemed uh, clear to me from that previous example, that the fact that there are multiple uh, belief systems surrounding the idea of God and religion, and uh, most of them make truth claims that would exclude the others, and clearly they're in conflict with one another. So one of them's right, and the others are wrong, or more to the point, they're probably all wrong, or socially constructed, or geographically based, or whatever. Um, and, and so that was a big factor for me. In in, in graduate school, I took a, a couple courses in anthropology and social psychology and sociology and whatnot. And it, it seemed pretty obvious, you know, when you start studying comparative world religions and comparative mythology, that, you know, they all make truth claims and and, and they're all pretty certain, they were as certain as I was. So that, that, that always kind of was niggling away in my brain that, you know, there's something wrong here, uh, epistemologically about how we know what's true. Uh, but at least science had some technique, some technology, some methods to get at figuring out what is true whereas the religions had nothing they just said well that's this is what we declare to be true well by the time you get trained in science you that's not a valid argument you can't just say it's what i believe full stop end of story well no that's not acceptable <laughs> you know i mean really when somebody says that you know that's really the end of the conversation not much more to say um so i i kept moving on and pushing the envelope forward of what we can know and
0: ended up being a religious skeptic. So a lot of atheists, um, public intellectuals, the four horsemen, it seems like when they debate, they, um, negate the, the theistic arguments for God, meaning that they, they explain why the theistic arguments are false. Um, Mm -hmm. but it sounds like you have a few positive arguments for agnosticism or atheism. Um, is that so? And if so, what are those arguments?
1: Oh well, you know uh, the, the the arguments that theists make—you uh, know, the prime mover, the first cause, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, and, and so forth, the fine tuning argument—and um, uh, those are all pretty good arguments that theists have. And the atheists, we have slightly better counter arguments to those. I think if you just use the arguments that theists will lose, um, they do. The vast majority of professional philosophers that deal with these questions, um, you know, are religious skeptics. They're atheists or agnostics or whatever. They 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 don't look at the arguments and and then draw that conclusion, whereas they do in other areas. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty good um, a mark against theism. And I I make those arguments in my debates for sure. Um, there's no really arguments for agnosticism i mean it's cuz it's not a thing atheism isn't a thing either um you know there's no set of doctrines that atheists believe we just don't believe in god full stop um you know we're humanists or scientific humanists or enlightenment humanists or secular humanists or whatever label you want to use you know that label carries a set of doctrines that we believe in you know like civil rights and women's rights and you know, gay rights and children's rights and workers' rights and we believe in, uh, you know, free speech and and, and so on. Th- th- those are a set of doctrines we can say, th- this is what we affirm as what it means to be a humanist. There's nothing like that for atheism because it, it isn't a worldview. This is a mistake I think uh, people in uh, theists, but also just the general public, make thinking that, you know, atheism is a thing and, and, and therefore, you know, stalin was an atheist and mao was an atheist and hitler was an atheist although he wasn't um that therefore that this is what atheism leads to well no and that isn't because atheism isn't anything um you know so i don't defend the position any more than i would defend anything else that we study at skeptic you know if i, uh, I we study psychic power and esp and astrology and all that and and we don't believe it but there's nothing there's no arguments to make, it's just you haven't made your case for their existence or their reality.
0: So ergo, null hypothesis, it's not true. So sort of to turn the the tables on you, I guess, a little bit, I wanted to ask, what is the the strongest argument for God's existence that you've heard? You mentioned some of them, but is there any argument that you've heard a theist make that you really thought and paused for a second?
1: Well, I I think their best arguments are the the fine tune argument. You know why the laws of nature and constants are uh, as they are. um, That you know you end up with atoms and molecules and planets and people and you know the whole the whole setup. Um, You know, on the surface of it, it kind of looks like there's a a a fine tuner. Um, You know, things look designed, and so therefore there's a designer. Now Darwin gives us an explanation for. The fine tuning of life forms, you know, that is natural selection, is a designer, in a way. Adaptive functions of structures like wings or eyes are design. Eyes are designed to see. Wings are designed to fly. I think the word is okay as long as you recognize that, that is, there is no designer. It's just a, a bottom up system process called natural selection that does this. And but you know Dar- Darwin recognized that you know Paley's a watchmaker argument was was pretty sound he knew this argument quite well but he kind of turned it on its head now what physicists are are trying to do the same thing for the fine-tuned constants of, of the physical universe and so they'll make arguments like well if we live in a multiverse where there's lots and lots of universes all of which have slightly different laws of nature any of those that that are like ours will give can give rise to intelligent life that asks questions like, why are we here? Why is the universe structured the way it is? Now, it's not a completely satisfactory explanation because we don't know if there's multiple universes. You know, That's a hypothesis or it's a conjecture at the moment. And, um, and if, if the part of it is true that we can never know, that is we can never have access to one of these other bubble universes, then, then it can't be part of science because there's no way to, to falsify it. You know, so at some point, you kind of hit an epistemological wall there where we just can't know. Like, why is there something rather than nothing is another argument that theists make that ends up being kind of a head scratcher for most people because, you know, the moment you start thinking about this, um, well, what do you mean by nothing? You know, and, and, and so it all turns on that word and, and it's just a word, you know, no thing. Well okay, I'm in my home studio here it's a garage, so you know we we take out all the bicycles and the car and the books and cases and, and I completely empty it, you know, but there's still the walls, okay, so I got to get rid of the walls, but there's still air, so I got to get rid of the air, I have a vacuum, but there's still space time, so I have to get rid of that, but even that's not enough so uh, I'm talking about let's say the entire universe, even that's not enough because there's you know you got once you get rid of space time. Then, then, what are we talking about uh, as existing? So, some kind of consciousness? No, there can't be any consciousness. And furthermore, there can't even be logic or mathematics, or even any Platonic ideas at all, which would include God. There can't be a God. And and therefore, at some point, you know, there's not even <laughs> there's not even nothing. You you can't even say that. There, there you know, there's no eternity because there's no time there's no darkness because not only is there no light, there's no darkness because there's nothing for the darkness to be dark in. <laughs> you know, and at some point I don't even know what I'm talking about <laughs> and, and neither do you, nobody does. It's just, you know, we 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 hit a cognitive barrier based on the limitations of our uh, concepts, which are really just words we use and, and uh, to describe something we're thinking about. And the theist argument, well, that's where God comes in, doesn't actually, fly either uh, the most of the cosmologists can do is say well there was some pre-existing condition that gave rise to the something or that there's always been something and that nothing would be unstable and 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 can't come about so it's something like an eternal universe or an eternal sequence or cycle of bubble universes that pop in and out of existence but then of course theist says, well where does this stuff come from that popped into existence, you know, and and at some point, you know, you, just, you end up in an infinite regress. Mm-hmm. Now, the theist just says, Well, you have to stop the regress somewhere, and I'm stopping it at God. But I say, you know, foul, I call foul on that, because, you know, that God has to stand somewhere to create a universe and create it out of something he has to create stuff. Well, you know, where is he standing, when he does this, and, and the moment that you take the word nothing to its serious end, there can't be even a concept of a God. So how does God exist? And if you say, well, God exists outside of space and time, that's that's he's still existing somewhere. Um, Therefore, when you say nothing, you don't really mean nothing. You mean there is something there's this something called God. And if that's possible, then there could be other somethings like platonic ideas or mathematics or logic or laws of nature or you know whatever then we're right back to where we are now with stuff (laughs) right so that's the problem there
0: yeah i think it was aristotle and you might be able to correct me on this who defined nothing as um that which rocks dream about um (laughs) that's what i've always thought of when i think of nothing but the other week i interviewed american christian philosopher uh william lane craig um, yeah. who sam harris said uh puts the fear of god into those he debates um dr craig <laughs> said well. the the biggest problem for theist is the hiddenness of god um mr Shermer, what is the biggest problem for atheist or agnostics philosophically speaking
1: well I, I i guess it would be just a reiteration of what i just said in terms of the arguments theists make that we can counter, but at some point you just hit a wall where you, you you know you can't talk anymore. There's nothing more to say about it. You know, not just nothingness, but also consciousness is another one of these um, uh, conceptual problems that uh, are difficult to wrangle with for everybody. Now, of course, the theist just says, "Well, God just plopped the consciousness into people's skulls." Well, you know, it's a, it's a really unsatisfying explanation you know you know and then a miracle occurs okay <laughs> how did that happen? you know exactly how does the the deity tweak the neurons and the neurochemical transmitter substances that uh, float across the synaptic gaps between n- neurons? How does that translate into consciousness? It, give us an explanation please, because neuroscientists want to know so again just saying god did it is not an answer you know this is what we call the god of the gaps arguments you know and then a miracle happens well in science you can't do that and but but neuroscientists have not come to an agreement on what consciousness is you know it's 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 a fairly new problem since really the late 90s 1990s that scientists have been studying it but it, it may be one of these mysterian mysteries that can't be uh, explained or solved because of conceptual problems that is, is a problem with our concepts um, you know what d- does your red look like my red as philosophers like to talk about well this sort of implies that the little homunculus in my head can leap over into your skull and look at the red you're seeing to see if it looks like my red you know so, of course it's a crazy idea so um, you know we just can't know that you know what it's like what is it like to be a bat you can't know I mean, if you if you bolted on all the um, anatomical hardware and and the neurological software uh, of a bat, so you'd feel like what it's like to be a bat. People have actually tried something some simpler like this, where you, you know, you 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 get inside a small closet and you and you make sounds, and you can kind of tell the sound bouncing off the. You close your eyes. Sound bouncing off the walls. You can kind of sense where the walls are and where stuff is. You know, but, but that's not what it's like to be a bat, you know, you'd have to have the full, um, uh, you, you know, sound system, the the sonar, um, you know, system, and uh, e- echolocation, sorry, and, and, but if you did that, at some point, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even be a human asking what it's like to be a bat, you'd just be a bat. And maybe you're a bat asking what it's like to be a human. I don't know. But, you know, again, it's, you know, philosophers have these thought experiments. They do this with free will and determinism, too, that I find rather frustrating because they, they, they don't lead to any testable experiments, you know, testable hypotheses. We can run an experiment and figure it out. Um, and, and again, you just kind of hit a wall. So um, these are the kinds of things theists like to talk about. So their biggest points are origins of the universe, origins of life, origins of consciousness, origins of morality those are kind of the four big ones and um, you know to them, if scientists can't offer a satisfying explanation, then the God did it hypothesis is where they turn well but in science it's okay to just say we don't know yet we're working on it uh, but in, in theology, you know that is their answer well God did it well sorry that's actually not an answer. Now, if you want to if you want to say, look, I just believe in God because it, it, it's just what I do and it makes me feel better. It's my, my faith tradition. And here's a bunch of arguments that I lean on because it, it makes me feel like my belief is not completely crazy. OK, I get that, you know, the fine tune argument where the universe come from, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, consciousness, morality. But uh, to somebody who just wants to to think a little deeper, you know, that's not going to get you there.
0: So right now I would like to present maybe one or two common theistic arguments and then uh, hopefully you can give a, a sort of quick or easy response to them so that our audience has these, these tools to combat these religious arguments. One of the uh, things that you talk about in a lot of your books and a lot of your articles is miracles um, and a lot of religious people like to make arguments for God from miracles. Uh, In a debate with Al Sharpton, the late Christopher Hitchens said that, um, uh, which is more likely, that the whole natural order is suspended or that a Jewish minx should tell a lie. Um, So what is wrong with miracles as support for theism?
1: i didn't know hitch uh debated al sharpton i bet i bet that was rather entertaining al sharpton's not known for his uh, theological expertise so i'm sure they must have turned to politics uh which i'm sure hitch could hold his own uh, in that area too um well the problem with miracles is first of all defining them um so you know most of us turn to the great david hume you know as kind of the the model of the modern thinker about miracles and you know he defined it really in two ways that you know it's a violation of the laws of nature and that there's some deity behind it right um and so hume's principle uh what uh, i call hume's maxim is to is to ask the what's more likely question you phrased it perfectly quoting hitch what's more likely that um, you know the laws of nature were suspended or that the people telling us the story of what happened you know misperceived what they thought happened, exaggerated, lied, made it up, or delusional, hallucinated, you know whatever. well, we have no uh, direct evidence of miracles happening, laws of nature being suspended, but we have lots and lots of examples pretty much daily of humans that misperceive things, uh, they hallucinate, they exaggerate, they lie, and so on you know it's it's pretty much part of human nature. <laughs> And uh, so Hume then said, well, you know, in every case, I'm going to reject the larger miracle. And, uh, you know, so that that's how you end up with the rejection of all miracles. Now, if we look at it a more colloquial way, the way kind of the average person thinks about it, you know, what they really mean is it's such an an unlikely event. So in my intuitions, improbable that there had, had to be some kind of force behind it a, a god pushing things or fate or something like that you know so you know the 911 the person goes left down the stairwell in the world trade center instead of right and ends up surviving okay it's a miracle well first of all you know you had to go somewhere and what about all the people that went right instead of left you know was god upset about them uh, did they have the wrong religion why did they die you know it, it, there's sort of a what's called a survivor bias whoever survives then people look at that as you know something special. But what about the people that didn't survive? You know, we have to take them into account as well. And our intuitions kind of have this, you know, million to one odds, you know, something that's so unlikely, you know, it'd be a million to one if it happened. You can make it 10 million to one, whatever. It's just a big number. Well, but if you have enough of a large number, like 340 million Americans, you know, every, you know, million to one odds are going to happen you know 340 times a day uh, you know just you know if if you have enough stuff going on even highly improbable events will absolutely happen you know the lottery being won whatever um, it's gonna happen so whoever wins the lottery thinks man it was that ever special or I'm you know super lucky or fate you know smiled upon me or whatever but you know uh, th- th- it really means nothing in a statistical analysis and. I usually think of miracles in that context of, you know, exactly what are we talking about uh, explaining, you know, the person's cancer was cured because everybody prayed for her. Well, what about the people that got prayed for and they died? Oh, well, God works in mysterious ways or whatever. These are just hand waving arguments. Um, you know, they they don't actually explain that the problem to be explained. So. Um, you know, miracles. I, I understand the intuition behind it, why why people feel like um, some something is kind of directing things. You know, that the, the phrase that pollsters use is, you know, n- nothing happens by accident or everything happens for a reason. Now, I've explained this with the concept of patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise, and agenticity, the tendency to fill those patterns with intentional agents behind the patterns and our brains just do this cognitively it's just, it just comes natural it's kind of part of the process of learning and connecting a to b and so on this is what we do and it's okay for a lot of circumstances but it also ends up leading us to believe in things that are not real even though we feel like they are uh you know the and this gives rise to you know spiritism spiritualism and animism and monotheism and polytheism and you know conspiracy theories and whatnot that you know everything happens uh, for a reason that that's a fairly common human thing and I I think miracles are part of that
0: so let's imagine that I am a a born-again Christian I just got converted I just finished reading mere Christianity and I believe that there is a moral law and therefore a moral law giver What's wrong with my thinking, Mr. Sherman?
1: Well, there is a moral law. That is, we do have a sense of right and wrong, and it comes uh, on on board online fairly early. We know from Paul Bloom's research at his Yale lab uh, that babies, just you know, barely a year old, have a sense of right and wrong. These are done with little puppet uh, shows that the, they show the babies and. Of course the babies aren't can't speak yet but they're they, they gaze at one puppet more than another or whatever and they, they have like a good puppet that helps the other puppet roll the ball up the ramp or they have a naughty puppet that comes in and sort of slaps the ball down and prevents the, the nice puppet from rolling the ball up to the up the ramp you know these kinds of little tasks and it, it's it's pretty clear from very early on that, that babies have a sense that you know that was a bad puppet and that's a nice puppet right so the idea here is that we're born with a sense of right and wrong. Um, that is uh, helping other people or, or hurting other people. You know, just a super basic concept like that. And that comes online fairly early. And then of course it's tweaked by our parents and teachers and mentors and culture and TV and novels and whatnot. You know, obviously the environment plays a huge role. But this idea that, um, that it, it comes equipped with human nature is a good counter argument to the God did it argument because what theists are really after is something transcendent that is to say for the theist they want to feel like there's really a right or wrong now, outside of just what cultures say is right or wrong that there's some buddy the lawgiver moral lawgiver outside of uh, our our, our culture ourselves our planet whatever you know it, of course they think it's god um, that that says it's right or wrong you know and that's why it's really right or wrong okay well Plato refuted this in the Euth- Euthyphro dilemma where um, he said you know that if if a if if it requires some kind of God or gods to tell us what's right or wrong that that makes something right or wrong what if they don't say anything about it It, does that make it okay um you know that or is it just right or wrong really really in nature or whatever and god is just telling us he's just pointing to it going look that that one's good and that one's bad uh well what do we need the middleman for if it's really good or bad we should be able to figure that out just give us the arguments explanation for why it's right or wrong and in any case you know much of Moral life is not commented on in the Bible say use that example. Uh, So how are we supposed to determine that? Well, we think of the well, we have to think it through. Well, yeah, that's right. So everybody does (laughs) and um, You know, so my argument is that it is transcendent of you and I there's there's certain characteristics of the moral life features of the moral life that everybody wants you know, people would prefer to be healthy rather than sick. They'd prefer to be uh, full rather than starving. They'd prefer to be free rather than enslaved. They'd prefer not to be beaten or, or put herded into gas chambers. Or, you know, they'd they, they prefer to have uh, uh, autonomy over their bodies versus somebody else controlling their bodies. You know, it's like women's reproductive rights. Now, most of these have come about in the last couple of centuries, as I document in the moral arc, through rational arguments, that is people uh, making arguments for why we should expand the moral sphere to include more people. And it really comes down to this, this just kind of this basic sense that, you know, I I know I wouldn't want to be treated that way, so I shouldn't treat you that way. Or you can flip that and make it the platinum rule or whatever. but. You know, really, religions with the golden rule kind of got it right initially, but then they messed it up after that and there was no intellectual argument behind it. There was no science behind it. But we now know that that kind of reciprocity um, and is you know, grounded in reciprocal altruism. So evolutionary theory, evolutionary ethics gives us uh, an explanation for where morals come from. You know, we're a social primate species. We have to get along. You can't just be selfish and greedy and nasty and, and, and violent and aggressive all the time, or, or you're you not gonna be uh, part of our group. So we're gonna, we're gonna take care of that problem. And, and that is what social groups do. And, but all of it is moving in this direction of what we would now call universal human rights. That is, y- you are born equipped with a certain sense of right and wrong, and we're all born with, we should be born granted certain rights. And those are those universal human rights that everybody knows about, and it's been a long, long struggle because part of our nature doesn't want to give other people and other groups those same rights. You know, we're very tribal, so the push has largely been against theists and religion, religions that are not very inclusive. You know, so it's it's almost always conservatives, particularly religious Christian conservatives, who are the slowest to get on board with this idea of an inclusive universal human rights, which is should be what, you know, Christians defend, but they, you know, they, they only do so stubbornly after a long period of time. Now, of course, like take something like civil rights and and gay rights and so on. Most Christians now go, well, of course, you know, we always believe that. You're like, no, actually you didn't. And we have the data to show that you did not particularly with the same sex marriage thing, because it's so recent. You know, we have recent polling data showing that you know the vast majority of christians were absolutely against it all the way up until around 2011 when it began to shift and then the supreme court decision 2015. now most christians have quit talking about it, it maybe they find it embarrassing that they ever defended that uh, previous position but for the most part i think they, they 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 just realize well of course we should have been more inclusive that's what jesus taught but uh but it, it you know it's a it's a large push against Uh, Those forces.
0: So, my last question for you here today, Mr. Shermer, is what books would you recommend young people to read today?
1: Oh, well, (laughs) it's kind of a setup for uh, the books behind me in my bookcase. (laughs) Not, Not just mine, of course, but most of the books you see behind me I've read. And, you know, books by Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Dan Dennett, Sam Harris, and uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan, you know these are all great, great works, and I, I strongly recommend you know any of those. Really, uh, philosophy and science, and, and 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 I'm not just suggesting um, you know the, the great works of atheism because again, that's not enough. We have to defend what it is we do believe, and so um, these you know great works of of science and philosophy trying to construct something like a coherent worldview that includes a moral system, you know, ethics and, and, and defending universal human rights, you know, that's kind of the direction I would go um, in terms of the future. You know, we, um, you know, we're at a kind of a precipice here of, of a precarious time this year in 2020, especially uh, that's kind of brought this to the forefront. Uh, you know, now's the time we really
0: need to defend those rights uh, in, in order to, you know, keep going. Mr. Shermer, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Are hey, you